some ways, I kind of feel like this repurposed building. You know, I spent my life, uh, how old, you, you know how old all this complex is? It's not a test. 50s, so pretty much. Yeah, it's in the 70s like me. I spent my life as an artist. He made a quick passing reference to that. My father did a drawing on a piece of cardboard when I was three years old. And I watched from my high chair, as uh, like parents do, did a drawing for a child. And his hands swept over a piece of cardboard. And it became beautiful because he made lines on it. And uh, that day, it was like God touched my face with destiny. And as soon as I learned to talk, at the age of three, I still wasn't talking, still wasn't walking. Didn't get a good start in life, but as soon as I was able to, I said, I'm, I want to be an artist. That's what I'm going to be. I told my first grade teacher, I'm an artist. If you need any pictures, check with me. <laughs> and my dream of being an artist literally charted the course of my life, uh, determined the classes that I took at school and the ones I didn't take and who my friends were. I didn't hang out with athletes at all. I knew I couldn't run, throw, catch, or hit, so I just drew pictures. And... Uh, and so I, my wife knows I look forward to being old. I, I did. That might sound crazy to you, but I wanted to be an old master. And uh, old masters are not old masters because they painted 500 years ago. They're old masters because they do their best work after they turn 60. So I look forward to being an old master. At the age of 57, God repurposed me and called me in the ministry. I thought he made a mistake. I did. I knew I had perfected my skill as an artist, and I didn't go to seminary, and I didn't pay attention in junior boys' Sunday school, so I knew I wasn't qualified to be a preacher, uh, but God had his own plans. So I'm going to speak to you for a few minutes, but before I do, I'd like to mention I brought a book along, and I'll tell you how this is going to go. If you think I'm here to sell books, you'll misunderstand, but uh, when I was still a Sunday school teacher, I wrote a book called Like a Tree a radical approach to living the good life, and it was inspired by Psalm chapter 1. If you buy the book and read it, it does two things. It actually mines the riches of the first chapter of the book of Psalm because there is where the Bible says that if you delight yourself in the law of the Lord and heed the three warnings that begin the chapter, that you'll be like a tree planted by a river. You'll always be fruitful, always be green and growing. And whatever you do, whether you do this, that, or the other, whatever you do shall prosper. That's a promise from the Word of God. It's not for the wicked. Actually, it says right there, the wicked are not so. And so in this book, I, I mind that, but also the testimony of my life and my wife, Linda. We walked together. We met when at Church of God Youth Camp when, when I was 15 and different and she was 14 and beautiful. And we met and fell in love and we've been together uh, this year. We've been married 53 years. And uh, we use the principles from Psalm 1 for our life. And so the testimony is in there. Can I give you one? Since you saw the Wildcat painting, I'll give you one quick one. Um, in the 90s, we built the Mitchell Toll Studio and Gallery in Berea. It was there for almost 40 years. It actually became a must-see destination for tourists traveling to Kentucky. The Kentucky Tourism Cabinet listed it in all their literature. But it didn't start out that way. I was struggling, couldn't sell my art. It just wasn't working. But we built this gallery, 
We saved money to build it because we didn't want to go in debt. It's not a good idea to go in debt if you're an artist because if you do, you'll probably never get out. So our plan was to avoid debt and just build a building that we could afford. But God had a different plan in mind. He wanted me to learn something about him. So we built the gallery uh, in the worst winter in Kentucky in 125 years. So it took longer and cost more than we could have ever imagined. When it was finished, we were a few hundred thousand dollars in debt. That was a new place to be. What that meant was every time we got a spare nickel, we took it to the bank. Um, we were not paying on payments. We were just paying interest. That's all we could do. And so in my prayer time, I told God, I would always say, God, I need an idea. I never said, God, I need a handout. I just need an idea. God, I need, you give us an idea. We're not lazy. We'll do it. God, we need a good idea. And so I would pray that way. Well, guess what? One day, my son, my only son, came upstairs to my studio and began the conversation by saying, Dad, I've got an idea. Now, he don't know that I've been saying, God, I need an idea. And he comes and says, Dad, I've got an idea. Now, you would have thought I would have picked up on that. <laughs> but I didn't because I might be kind of like you. If God is going to send me a message, he should send it in a heavenly envelope that's sealed and delivered by Gabriel. <laughs> don't, don't send the same kid that wouldn't even take his laundry to the laundry basket <laughs> when he's growing up. So honestly, I almost missed it. I tried to ignore it, but it wouldn't go away. This idea, he said, Dad, it's real simple. This was in January of 1996. He said, Dad, the Kentucky Wildcats have not won a championship in 17 years. This is in January. This is not April. You know, SEC hasn't started, much less Final Four. He said, they're going to win it all this year, and you should do a painting of a Wildcat. I said, thank you, son. I've got work to do. And so he went downstairs, and the idea didn't go away. And as God would have it, I had a personal friend named Catherine Hilker, who was the keeper of the big cats at the Cincinnati Zoo. So I called Catherine and said, do you by chance have any wildcats up there? She said, I've got two. I said, are they good? She said, they are fine specimens. I said, I think I might like to paint one of them. Could I come see it? She said, the problem is they sleep all day and they're up all night. But if you'll tell me when you're coming, if you'll come early, I won't feed them and they'll be up and ready for you. And boy, were they ever. They were up and mad and hungry. They growled at the camera every time, just like the painting you saw. They all were always growling. I took several photographs, came back. It took two weeks to do the painting. A friend of mine delivered it over to show it to Rick Pitino. I didn't even know who Rick Pitino was. I was not a sports fan. I was not a UK basketball fan. I was an artist. But he took it over and showed it to him, and Rick said, that's the best thing I've ever seen. He said, well, the artist would like for you to endorse it. He said, I just did. Some of you might have seen it. He did the commercials in 1996. After three weeks, after three weeks, I went in to see my bank president, and I said, I owe you some money. And so he told me how much the interest was, and I said, no, how much is all of it? And he told me. And after three weeks, we were able to pay off the gallery. I make no such promises to you. These are the promises of God. He said, and whatsoever he doeth shall prosper if he'll heed these warnings and delight himself in my instructions. And so I did, and I did that painting. To this day, it's the best-selling painting in the history of the University of, of uh, Kentucky, for which I am incredibly 
grateful to God and now a little bit thankful to my son. <laughs> if you want to get the book, and I hope you will, it's out there and you can get it. And the proceeds will not go to me. We're taking a Bible quizzing team to San Antonio two weeks from today. And we've got 25 kids. Uh, we won first, second, third in Kentucky. And now for $25,000 or so, we can take them to San Antonio and bring back a plastic trophy. <laughs> Makes sense. If you, could, if you could hear these kids quote the Bible, you would say it makes sense. I'll tell you this, and I'll go right to my sermon. One of those Bible quizzers is our seven-year-old, just turned seven last Saturday, Sir Isaac James. He's one of my ten grandchildren. What a guy he is. And so he stayed with me uh, all last week, and we were together, and he said, Papa, I wish we still lived in Bible days. And I said, why would you say a thing like that? He said, well, because I, if we lived in Bible days, then, then we could still see miracles. And I said, well, son, you are a miracle. He said, oh, yeah. <laughs> you don't know the significance of that, but his mother, Misty, she and Jeremy moved from New York City and left Carnegie Hall to come home to have babies, but they couldn't. And then they started seeing specialists in Lexington who all said, you can't have babies. Sorry, but you'll never have babies. One to the next to the next. And then in the middle of all of that, she went to Kentucky camp meeting, and a preacher named Chris Moody was there preaching. I wasn't there. He did not know me. He didn't know any of my children. After he preached, a couple hundred people gathered in the altar, and my daughter and son-in-law were out there in the altar with, among those 200 or so people. And he said to somebody beside him, go bring me that couple. And they brought him right here to the altar. And he laid his hands on my daughter's face. And he said, God has seen your tears. And he's going to give you babies. And by the time I got home from preaching, I was off somewhere preaching. She was mad. She said, you know, who is this Yehu? She said, I've been to three specialists. And they tell me that I'll never have children. Now that guy, and I said, Misty, it's simple. If it's the word of God, you'll have children. And if it's not, we'll put a big X through Chris Moody's name and call him a false prophet. <laughs> and a few years ago, I had him to come to church and preach for us so he could hold the miracle that he prophesied in his arm. But uh, we really serve a big God, don't we? He has a little brother now named Luke. <laughs> Luke likes to break stuff. best story about Luke is just this one. His daddy built a plaything in the backyard. He bought it on Craigslist and had to put all of it together. And their living room overlooks the backyard. So those boys are hopping up and down the whole week as dad comes in from work every night putting that together. Finally, he says on Friday night, tomorrow on Saturday morning, I will finish about 10 o'clock and you all can go play. So, okay. The next morning, he gets him by the hand out on the deck, and he stands at the edge of the deck, and he says, now, guys, this could be dangerous, so whenever you go down there, be careful, whatever you do, be careful, be careful, be careful. So as soon as they get down there, Sir Isaac, he goes around to the stairs to go up the ladder to the slide. Luke, the four-year-old, he goes straight to the slide, climbing up the slide, saying, be careful, be careful, be careful. <laughs> 
That's my guy right there. Father, we love you so. It's always good to smile and laugh and thank you for blessings like these grand boys and Bible quizzers in San Antonio and God, the miracle here at Freedom Point. We're so thankful for what you've done. Today, God, we ask you to speak to us from the pages of your word that as we go forward from this day, we'll recognize that our past does not equal our future and the destiny that you have ordered for us is inevitable because you're that kind of God. In fact, you said concerning your church that even the gates of hell should not prevail against it. The plans that you have are literally unstoppable. Open our minds and our understanding to true possibility today. In Jesus' name, amen. I have such regard for your pastor and his dear wife and their family and the leadership team that he's assembled here um, and all that you have been able to do. Uh, one of the things that you know that by the time you get my age is that a goal achieved is a very dangerous thing because it's the perfect resting place. And some people, once they rest, they love resting so much you can never get them going again. And so I, I really want to become, if I could before I go today, a kind of a burr under your saddle, a kind of a provoker. You know that word, provoke? In some places the Bible says it don't, says don't provoke, don't provoke children, but it does say provoke one another to love and to good works. So I have biblical authority to provoke you into your incredible destiny. Because, Brother Sean, I believe that this is barely the beginning. I believe that the timing that you've been released into the earth here is God's timing. This is God's idea. I know a lot of our ideas seem like our own. You ought to do it sometime. I always get thrilled at the idea. I've always been accused of being a dreamer all of my life. I was the dreamer, the daydreamer. Whatever you do, don't dream during the day. If you dream at night, you're a nice guy, but daydreamers, they're not good at all. But if you just go to the, if you just go to the Internet sometime, the Internet's good for a few things. But if you go there and type in these three words, Bible, vision, dreams, you'll be shocked. The Bible says that the steps of a good man are ordered of the Lord, and he delighteth in his ways. How do you think God does that? Primarily through dreams and visions. Dream a dream. James Allen said, dream lofty dreams, for as you dream, so shall you become. Actually, the apostle Peter, preaching on the day of Pentecost, he said this in Acts chapter 2, and it shall come to pass in the last days, says God, that I will pour out of my spirit on all flesh. Your sons and your daughters shall prophesy. Your young men shall see visions. Your old men shall dream dreams. And here in this place, the dream that you have dreamed has now become a reality. Okay? But it's a reality with purpose. It's not... It's, this is not a museum. This is not an artifact to be examined and to be applauded over, but rather it is a place to go to work. I would dare say to you it's a barn for the harvest. That's what it really is. It's a barn uh, for the harvest. So the timing of your completion of all of this work is perfect because we are, some say that we're at the end of the pandemic. I don't know where we are and all that. and don't know who to believe. Pretty much no one uh, you know, we actually live not simply in the age of the age of deception, like actually whenever the, G uh, the disciples said to Jesus, when will these things be and what will be the sign of thy coming? Whenever that question was asked in Matthew chapter 24 and then in 25, five times he said, see that no man deceives you. He, he, one of the great indicators that you're living in the last days is deception. I've never seen anything like it. We actually call news fake news. You know, I mean, used to, they just read the news, and you know that was what happened. 
But nowadays, we don't know what, that, what they read. We don't know what that means. We just don't know who to believe anywhere anymore. I'm not being sarcastic. I'm just tossing it out there. You live in the same town I do, don't you? The same world, the same world that I do, the same state. So, so the reason that the timing of all of this is so perfect is that we're actually living in a prophesied age, a time called perilous times. Paul said that in the last days, perilous times will come. So this is actually, from the pages of this holy book, this is a clear warning of global danger and widespread destruction in a specific era or a span of time that the Bible usually categorizes as the last days. These perilous times will come at the end of time. It's a sobering and a clear warning for people who are going to be living in that age. So I want to submit to you here at the outset that, that we are that prophesied generation. These are those perilous times. Some of you are very, very young and, and you have a hard time embracing uh, even the things that I'm saying. But by the time you live as long as I have, you're keenly aware that you've never actually seen anything like this before. Now, I've seen trouble come and trouble go, but this is not that. There's so many things going on at the same time right now, right? You, 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 you do know what I'm saying. It's kind of like before you can get straightened up over one, it's something else. So this warning of perilous times in Scripture is an intense warning. It is critical, and it's urgent. Actually, 3,000 years ago, the prophet Joel said this in Joel 2.1, Blow the trumpet in Zion, sound the alarm on my holy hill, let all who live in the land tremble, for the day of the Lord is coming. It is close at hand. He said that 3,000 years ago. If the last days were being prophesied then, surely they must be closed. Now, I get it that a lot of people don't believe this, but I'm asking you to at least examine the possibility. Do a little research. See if whether or not the things that I'm saying might actually be true. Let me share with you this passage, parts of it from 2 Timothy 3, verses 1 through 17, but I'm not going to read it all. I'll skip, and you guys in the media do your best to just kind of skip with me. But know this, that in the last days, perilous times will come. And then this description sounds like it could come from an article in Forbes magazine or the New Yorker. For men will be lovers of themselves, lovers of money, boasters, proud, blasphemers, disobedient to parents, unthankful, unholy, unloving, unforgiving, slanderers without self-control, brutal, despisers of good, traitors, headstrong, haughty, Lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God, having a form of godliness but denying its power from such people, turn away. Let's skip all the way down to verse 10. But you have carefully followed my doctrine, Timothy. That's who he's talking to. Manner of life, purpose, faith, long-suffering, love, perseverance, persecutions, affliction. What happened to me at Antioch, at Iconium, at Lystra, what persecutions I endured. And out of them all the Lord delivered me. Yes, and all who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will suffer persecution. Isn't that interesting? He's talking about perilous times, and he's talking about the things you've observed in me. And then he just drops in this thought, and all who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will suffer persecution. How does that parallel with most television preaching you're hearing today? And the prosperity gospel that's become the new gospel of our generation doesn't really line up, does it? But even men, evil men and imposters will grow worse and worse, deceiving and being deceived. But you must continue in the things which you've learned and been assured of, knowing from whom you have learned them, and that from childhood you've known the Holy Scriptures, which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith, which is in Christ Jesus. So 
I believe, let me make that assertion, I believe that we're living in this era of perilous times in the last days. I'm not asking you to agree, but I am asking you to investigate. I don't think there's anything more important you could examine and investigate is whether or not we're living in the last days and what you need to do to make sure you spend eternity in heaven and not in hell. So if you've never done that for yourself, you shouldn't take your neighbor's word. You actually ought to do your own research, do your own reading. So you and I are living, I believe, in prophecy every single day of our lives. We are a prophesied generation. So some of us don't really buy that. Even as Christians, we don't buy that because I think you and, I, and, and to a certain degree me, I think some have in error imagined that the last days refers only to the period just before Christ returns to reign a thousand years in the millennial reign. Or some of us have concluded that it's just the great tribulation. Those are the last days. And so as a result, we never expected to see any of the things that we're seeing right, right now. See, because right before our eyes, if we could have a discussion, I think you all could buy in and we could talk, but I think all of you have seen what I'm talking about. We are right now watching the establishment of a world health care system, a one-world financial system, a one-world currency, a one-world military force, a one-world religion, a one-world government. And the revealing of the Antichrist and his sidekick, the beast rising out of the sea. We are witnesses to many things that we never thought we would see. To be honest, I figured the church would already be gone and we would not be exposed to the mess. I mean, the reality is the stuff that is now ordinary and commonplace. I mean, you, you, I ought to be able to sit on the couch and watch television with my grandsons, but I can't even watch the commercials because they're so filthy and embarrassing the stuff they talk about openly right now, you just can't watch. I, I just never thought I would. I, I grew up in the, uh, in the era of, of Andy Griffith and, and, and Barney Fife and, and, and Aunt B. You know, I, 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 came, I come from that. I never thought that there would be anything like this. And so the reality is because most of us never thought we would live to see this, we're still counting on some kind of a turnaround uh, rather than actually say, hey, these are the last days. I need to go to my neighbor and shake him by the collar and say, you've got to be saved. These are the last days. So, so we just choose to say, well, this is not it. This will turn around. This is going to be okay. Normal is coming back. I saw the other day a t-shirt that said, normal ain't coming back. Jesus is. I wouldn't care to own that shirt. See, the reality is, since we can't believe what we have heard, as a church, we are just waiting. I mean, I know it. Look, I, I live in the same world you do. <laughs> I try not to go on social media, on Facebook, but inevitably every now and then I find myself there. And I know most of my friends are church folks. They're waiting on a new political leader. We're just waiting. So we're waiting on a new political leader. We're waiting for a reestablishment of the Christian worldview. 
we know that right now we're not very much of a Christian nation. If we're supposed to be a Christian nation, we're not very good at it. So we see that's a problem. So we're waiting for a revival of personal integrity and good values. We're waiting for good morality, good morals to return to humanity. We're waiting for the return of family-friendly television. We're waiting on an economic rebound. We're waiting for lower taxes, a shorter work week. We're longing for more wealth, more peace, more good times. And while we're waiting on all of that, the Word of God said in the last days, perilous times will come. You see the tension between what we're looking for and what is actually here. So what does it mean to say that perilous times will come? That means you ought to expect it. That's not what we expect, is it? We expect things to turn around. Some smart men are going to gather together in a big room and hold a big meeting and come out with a good idea and implement it and everything will be okay. That's what we expect and that's what they're telling us that they're going to do for us. So we buy into all of that. We, should ex we shouldn't just expect it. We should watch for it. Here is what the Word of God said in 1 Thessalonians 5 and 2. For you yourselves are fully aware that the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night. While people are saying there's peace and security, then sudden destruction will come upon them as labor pains upon a pregnant woman, and they will not escape. But you are not in darkness, brothers, for that day to surprise you. See, the world ought to be surprised that these are the last days, but we shouldn't. We ought to know it, right? Right? And actually, I would submit to you that Christians ought to be the most observant in this age of Christians of any age, the most watchful group. Why? Because whenever the disciples said, Lord, when? When will this be? And when will be the signs of thy coming? He said, watch. Matthew 24, 42. Watch therefore, for you do not know what hour the Lord is coming. Mark 13, 33. Take heed, watch, and pray, for you do not know when the time is. Mark 13, 35. Watch therefore, for you do not know when the master of the house is coming. And, and then in, in Luke 21, 36. Watch therefore and pray always that you may be counted worthy to escape. All these things will come to pass and stand before the Son of Man. Revelation 16, 15. Behold, I'm coming as a thief. Blessed is he who watches. 1 Thessalonians 5 and 6. Therefore, let us not sleep as others do. Let us watch and be sober. And Mark 13, 37. What I say to you, I say to all, watch. He's telling us to watch, watch, watch. Watch for what? Well... Watch more YouTube. No, I don't think that's what he meant. Watch more television. I don't think that's what he meant. Watch more social, no, social media. No. Watch more sports. That's the answer. No, I don't think so. I, I want to make this, an announce, this announcement to the generation that is the prophesied generation of the era of perilous time. The command is for you to watch for the second coming of Jesus. Watch for the indicators that these are the last days. And hear me. I'm talking about more than keeping one eye toward the eastern sky. So whenever Jesus comes back, he can snatch us away and we won't even have to pay our final credit card bill. That's not it. We are actually to become experts and specialists in the understanding of end time events. We should be studying prophetic scriptures. We ought to be like the men of Issachar, understanding the times, able to apply divine intelligence. See, you and I have access to divine intelligence. He said, if any man lacks wisdom, let him ask. God knows everything about everything at all times. And we've got access to that. Do you, ever, do you ever feel like somebody's watching you? I mean, do you really? I mean, I really do. I, I mean, my phone is turned off right now. 
but probably somebody's watching me on yours. <laughs> I, 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 I was going down the road with Linda, my wife, in the car. She would be here, but she's working with Bible quizzers today at home. And, 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 and we were just talking. We haven't been away for a long time on our own. I, we kept my precious mom the last 13 months of her life, and, and we were just there. And I said, baby, i got to get you away. Where would you like to go? So in, in our car, by ourselves, we talk about where we would like to go. It was a kind of an obscure place. It wasn't like Gatlinburg. It was just something obscure. I said, well, so-and-so told me they went, and that was nice. And so the conversation ended. About an hour down the road, she got out her phone just to kind of check and see if she had any, heard anything from the kids. Guess what was on her phone? An app. I mean, an ad to that obscure place. See, you, you, you thought your phone was listening? No, I think my car listened. I know you think I'm crazy, but you know if you lock yourself out of your car, you can call them and somebody somewhere in the world knows where your car is and can unlock it for you now. I, I think my refrigerator listens. I think my smart microwave knows exactly what's going on. I'm just simply saying, and so, so it seems that our government is an incredible intelligence gathering capability. They tell me they have satellites in outer space that can identify your face from outer space and they can read the license plate number on your car. They know right where you're at and what you're up to right now. I mean, it, so, so what are you talking about? I'm saying, hey, we've got a better source of information than that. We have divine intelligence. You and I know we've been told in advance thousands of years ago, this is how it's going to play out. Evil men are going to wax worse and worse. Imposters are going to show up. This is what's going to take place. There are going to be perilous times at the end. Are we in perilous times? I'm thinking we are. I, I mean, I'm going out on a limb. I'm thinking we are. But here's the key. This is why I went this far. We can't miss the point. Paul said there would be last days that would be perilous. And you say, got it, Mitchell. I'm with you on that. These are certainly perilous times. Have you seen the price of gas lately? That's peril. Did you hear about the war in Ukraine? Oh, yes. I got 40 Ukrainians that attend my church. Have you heard that China and Russia have now forged some kind of alliance? I'm not surprised. Did you know about the tsunami in the Pacific? Had you heard about the hurricane? Have you heard about all the natural disasters? What about the famine, the plague, inflation, rising interest, the new variant of COVID, monkeypox? Have you heard about monkeypox? We hear all of this stuff, and we finally agree, yes, these are perilous times. Honestly, that's kind of how I reach the conclusion that these are perilous times. But here's the thing. In the passage that I shared with you, Paul did not mention any of that stuff. He made no reference to the political chaos that we're living in. He made, says nothing about pandemics. He doesn't mention the economy. He doesn't talk about crop, crop failures, product shortages, supply chain issues, natural disease. He didn't mention any of that. Why? Because perilous times is not about that. It's not about politics. It's not about the economy. It's not even about natural disasters or famines or masks or mandates or $10 gas. The peril that God is in reference to here in this passage is greater in danger and higher in importance. Whenever Paul said, but know this, in the last days perilous times will come for men will be lovers of themselves, lovers of money. Boasters, proud, blasphemous, disobedient to parents, unthankful, unholy, unloving, unforgiving, slanders without self-control, brutal, despisers of good, traitors, headstrong, haughty, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God. You say, Mitchell, I know all of that. No. Here's what we think. 
We think that that's all about the world. Boy, what a mess the world is in. The world isn't, why don't the world straighten up? God is not waiting for the world to straighten up. He's waiting for the church to straighten up. Now look, don't leave me now because I'm just about done. I want you to hear this. Lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God having a form of godliness but denying its power. He's talking about the church, the mess inside the church. Evil men and imposters will grow worse and worse, deceiving and being deceived. We look around and say, well, the world is a mess. No, Paul is not warning Timothy about the world. Jesus said concerning fixing the problems in the world, it goes like this. If my people who are called by my name will humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then I will hear from heaven. I'll forgive their sin and heal their land. God is looking for the church to get it together. So here, what Paul is describing to Timothy is a church in trouble, a group of people who have a form of godliness but no power, people who are not real disciples but imposters, people who have been deceived and are now in, in pulpits and in Sunday school classes and on television and in Christian ministries deceiving others. The peril that Paul is talking about is the church gone wrong, a church in apostasy. Did you know that, say, well, I, I, I don't really see the evidence of that. One in every three people who used to go to church faithfully three years ago no longer attends church. One in every five churches is out of business altogether, closed the door, sold the property, will not be back. We're actually living right now in the age of apostasy. It's going on right now all around us. And listen, the thing of it is, in my church, one of the things that we do when we onboard new people, I get to teach that class. We call it Genesis Connect. Genesis means the beginning of your connection with us here at Man of War. I have three primary things that I talk about. I want to make sure that you get this. And one is the importance of the local church. I shouldn't have to have that in the top three. But you know why I do? Because most Christians don't even think it matters to go to church locally. The average, the average Christian, the average dedicated follower of Jesus goes to church 1.9 times a month. At our church, you, if you made all services, you could go 16 times a month. But we're down to 1.9 and we think that's cool. Any reason to miss church is a good reason. With the new lukewarm, casual, half-hearted, approach to following Jesus. I'm not accusing you. I believe you're a good, strong church, and I'll get there. The point of it is you got to stay the course. You cannot allow yourself to be swept away by the trends that are going on in these perilous times. Paul is addressing a church that is in trouble, a church in apostasy, a church that is not faithful to God, a church that gives money to itself to pad pews and air-condition a building and buy vans to take the kids to Kings Island and we call that tithe and offering. We give the money to ourselves to make ourselves comfortable. If you knew the small amount of money that is spent on global evangelism and world missions compared to all that we take in, you would have to confess we spend it on ourselves and call it God's money. I mean, I mean, he must be looking at us and say, really? I'm really preaching good. <laughs> we call that paying tithes. Paul is addressing a church that doesn't pray. We, we just turn in prayer requests. We don't actually pray. We, we hope somebody somewhere on the other end of the phone is praying. But as for us, 
Look, I've pastored now. I mean, I'm new at it. I did start at 57. I've only been doing it 15 years. I am new at it. But I do know that if you call a prayer meeting, if you will let them, they will spend the whole 45 minutes complaining about all the stuff that God hasn't done. We call them prayer requests. Well, I've been praying for Johnny for 12 years. God still hasn't done things. What a screw up. And we call that prayer meeting. I, I'm, just, I'm, just, I'm just preaching. That's all I'm doing. A church that won't pray, a church that won't worship God in spirit and in truth. Well, you know, I'm not really the vocal kind. Well, you, you let somebody slam dunk one over at Rupp Arena, and, and the unvocal suddenly becomes crazy vocal. A church that does not, he's talking to a church in trouble, a church that does not value sound doctrine but embraces lies and fables. A church that has a board that interviews, making sure that the new pastor is entertaining, funny, and also motivational. A church that is in love with itself. See, to me, this is the worst peril imaginable. A church full of people blinded by their own pride, thinking that they're own okay, just like the church at Laodicea. He said, you think you're rich, but you're poor. You think you're well-dressed, but you're actually naked. I mean, how far off could we possibly be? In their lukewarmness, the church of our age causes damage, creates division, makes a place for the devil, tolerates doctrines of demons, interferes with God and his plan to grow the church. Even without realizing it, they seem devout. They profess to know Jesus, but maintain a religious facade, and their conduct denies the power of God. They are the apostate church. I can't think of anything. See, Paul said, hey, in the last days, perilous times will come. You won't be able to trust the person in the pulpit, and you won't be able to trust the church to get you to heaven. So what that means is you've got to be a special church. You cannot be your ordinary, run-of-the-mill, prayerless, wordless, do-nothing, powerless church. You've got to be able to affect change. See, you have to believe so much that Jesus is coming back soon that when you say it to someone, they find your words compelling and irresistible. See, there's something, there's something weird going on in my life right now. I'm about ready to go. If somebody wants to work their way up here, that would be a good way to get me stopped. So I told you the whole art thing. So my wife and I lived together on a farm that had my studio on it for the last two decades, and it just got too much to take care of. So we sold it last year and bought a small house on a small piece of land, but it did not have a place for me to paint. So immediately uh, I went through homeowner association and all the stuff you have to do, had the plans done and got the permits to have a studio built on the property just got finished last week. In fact, Thursday of last week, movers moved my drawing table and stuff into place. I've not done a single painting in there, in there yet. But I bring that up because over the last seven or eight months, every day I've been rubbing elbows with construction workers, the guy that drives the concrete truck and the concrete block truck and the brick truck and the drywall truck and the heating and air conditioning guy and the plumber and the electrician. You know what I'm saying. All that myriad of people have been coming in and out of my life, them and their employees. And I found, this is something that I found. I found 
God is true. See, I, so none of us can argue that, the, that we live in a generation when sin abounds. But we forget that the Bible said where sin abounds, grace does much more abound. And so the presence of Almighty God is always at work. We get so religious. We got this idea that that God is in heaven watching us so he can catch us doing something wrong. I'll be honest, he wouldn't have to watch most of us long. But that's not what he's doing. David said in the 23rd Psalm, we use that Psalm only at funerals, but man, it's a lot deeper than that. But he ended by saying, surely, goodness said that God finds no pleasure in the death of the wicked. That he is not willing that any should perish. That God loves that concrete truck driver as much as he loved J.K. Merriman, that precious veteran and preacher of the gospel. God so loved the world. And so these guys, they pull in there, they back the truck up the hill, to my little studio and they're there to unload and I go out and say how's it going Rawr. you busy Rawr. how's the price of concrete Rawr. everything's bad but here's the thing that I found I have one purpose for my questions I really want to know are you ready but I can't just start there so I say, how's the trucking business? How's the concrete business? How's the building business? And the Holy Ghost knows what I'm up to. So every question digs a very different hole, touches a very different nerve. And finally, I get to the question that says, well, how are you? What about you? How are you doing? Depending on how they know me as the artist or the pastor, sometimes I say pastor or they say Mitchell. Let me ask you a question. Do you think, do you think something's going on? See, that's a spiritual question. They're not asking me about Democrats and Republicans now. And I say, what do you think? Big old coarse, rough men with calluses up past their thumb. They well up. Tears run down their face. They say, I believe it's about over. I ain't never seen it like this. I'm just, I'm telling you, in this age of grace, a church that is really the church can make a difference in Corbett. Can make a difference in this county. I mean, you all own London anyway. You can make a difference in London too. You can make a difference. But you have to want to. You can't be looking for a comfortable place to sit, a place to rest, a goal achieved. 
You can't be looking for a place of compromise. You have to be one of those people that just knows. The next sound I hear could be the blasting of the trumpet. The next step I take, the song said, I could, I could step off of gravel onto a street of gold. We're that close. There needs to be somebody that knows it inside so desperately that whenever they speak, it arrests the heart of the hearer. They can't dismiss. They can't deny. See, I know. I preach this, this hard here because I know you're a special church. I know that God has opened this door of opportunity for you because you can be trusted. But I also want you to be aware that Satan will do everything he can to keep you from your prayer closet, to keep you off of your knees, to keep you out of the Word of God, to keep you from focusing on this, the nearness of his coming, to keep you distracted. And what you've got to do is recognize that you may be it. You may be the only hope, the only help for the person you run into to the mailbox, for the little girl you pay for gas down at the convenience store, for the person at the post office, wherever you go, the steps that you take, you may be the last person that they will see between you and eternity. Before I was even called to preach, his name was Eddie. Eddie came here from Maryland with over 30 warrants for his arrest. Went to work for a construction company. That I was working with. I was 25. Eddie must have been 20 or 19. His dad fenced all the stuff that he stole. I didn't know any of that. We worked together. We became friends. And one day, he offered to steal a TV from me. I was talking about wanting to get a television and how expensive they were. And he said, I'll get you one. I thought maybe he had an uncle that sold them or something. And I did. I, it never occurred to me. I'd never known anybody who was a thief. And uh, I said, you mean you can get me a good price? He said, no, I'll just get you one. What do you mean you'll get me one? He said, I take stuff. I've been doing it all my life. He said, I'll get you a good one. I'll get you a new one. What kind do you want? Something rose up in me. And I stepped in close to him and put my finger in his chest. I said, don't you ever steal anything from me. And if I ever hear you stealing anything, I'll turn you in. You understand me? He said, yes. Years later, he told me, he said, I never offered to steal anything from anybody who turned me down to you. I wasn't a very good witness. I didn't know how to be witness. I didn't know how to quote anything. But the righteousness in me rose up and became a light. And he said, I never, I couldn't ever get that out of my mind. And so we went our separate ways. I became an artist and he worked construction. And decades later, lives of committed people who believe Jesus is coming soon to rapture the church. 
He don't just work when you come to church and they're singing a fast song. And Eddie was on my mind. So after a few days, I called the lumber yard where he did business and I said, have you seen Eddie? I need to see him. No, he hadn't been in here. I don't know where he's working. He hadn't been in here for a while. But then I became, it became a matter of urgency for me. You seen Eddie? I asked everybody I knew. Where's Eddie? Where's he working? Word became so widespread. One day somebody stopped in the gallery and came and said, I saw Eddie. He's putting vinyl siding on a house right down here. And I went in and told Linda, I'll be right back. I found where Eddie's at. I've got to go see him. I went to see him and I walked on a job site. The Holy Spirit overwhelmed me. And I walked up to Eddie and I said, I haven't seen you. How are you doing? He said, I'm okay. I said, are you saved? knelt in the yard in front of him and held his hands and said, Eddie, you got to get saved. His tears splashed on the tops of my hands while I held his hands and asked him to pray. Whenever I stood up, he still hadn't prayed and he said, Mitchell, don't stop praying for me. I said, Eddie, I pray for you. But there comes a time when a man's got to pray for himself. You could trust the Holy Ghost. I said, Eddie, I may not be with you. I may not see you. I may not be near you when it's, when it's time to go. But this is all you do. Just say, Jesus, I'm sorry. Forgive me of my sin. I said, Eddie, he will. That awful prayer that guy on the cross prayed. Wasn't that terrible? He didn't even repent. Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. Jesus said, good enough. I went off to speak that week in California for a company. When I came back, they said, did you hear? Eddie Taylor died. Died in a truck wreck killed suddenly, instantly. I wasn't satisfied. I got in my car and I drove to the fire station and said, who worked the truck? Who worked the wreck for Eddie? They took me to it, Doug. I said, Doug, tell me. They said he died instantly. He said, he hit that tree, Mitchell. I don't know how long, he said, for his life to ebb out of him. But he didn't live long. That's all the hope I needed. And it was just like the Holy Spirit spoke to me and said, you did the right thing. And even as his life was leaving him, surely goodness and mercy will follow me in the cab of my truck on a dark night. Your calling is real. It's personal. Your pastor can't save everybody in town. It's got to be you. This is the age of peril. These are the last days. You are the voice of one crying in the wilderness saying Jesus is coming. And if you do, 
you will receive them. Can you stand on your feet? We're going to pray. I'm done. Here's the thing that I want you to know. Say, Mitchell, I've tried all that stuff. It's a new era. It's a new day. It's a new age. It's the age of peril. Have, had, have worked a long time and didn't get much for it. But we are in the last hour. And so that same nephew, I got one of mine, that same nephew grew up in church and gave up and got brought into my mind and I started calling his name in prayer. Crazy saved. He's cra he's crazy saved, and his brother he has not missed now in five weeks. And I said to his brother, you know, after three weeks, I claim you here, and this has got to be. He said, this is week number five, but I'm just coming to support my brother in the choir. I said, I know. inevitable. Don't you like that word? The inevitable promises of God. Ask, he said. I'll see what I can do. No, he said, ask, you shall receive. Ask for the souls of your loved ones. You shall receive. Stop asking God for temporal, insignificant dollar an hour raise and ask God. He said, ask me and I'll give you the nations as an inheritance. He's a big God, and this is the last hour, and he wants hell empty and heaven full. Why not ask? Anybody here that doesn't know Jesus and needs to be saved, would you just raise your hand and say, Pastor, pray for me. I'm looking at this section right now. God's speaking to your heart. You're lost. I think I see a hand. I sure do. I see two hands. Anybody else? You can put it down once I've recognized you. Somebody else, wave it so I can see. We'll pray a sinner's prayer for one. We got two. Anybody else? Somebody, look, you say, well, yeah, I know I'm lost, but I, look. The reason you know you're lost is because the Holy Spirit has revealed to you you're lost. Otherwise, you could never know. So that means he is here to save you. He's not here to tease you. He's here to save you. Anybody else want to raise your hand in Jesus' name? Come on, we're going to pray this sinner's prayer. Yeah. Anybody? Wave it big. Nobody can see you. I can't. All right. I saw a hand just then. Thank you. Look, you're all going to repeat after me, and that way we won't embarrass if you didn't raise your hand because you couldn't, because you were ashamed, embarrassed, God, I've been there, just pray the prayer. He'll hear your prayer and save your soul right now. 
Would everybody in the house dare to repeat after me so we don't embarrass anybody? Let's pray like this. Dear Jesus, I come to you today because I'm lost and I cannot save myself. But Jesus, I believe you're the Son of God that you lived on this earth, died on a cross, and rose from the dead. And Jesus, I believe you're hearing my prayer. So I'm asking you, forgive me of my sin. Cleanse my heart with your precious blood. Come inside of me. Be my Savior. And be my Lord. And I receive 